Hi, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the Best Pictures Podcast. I'm Ian, and this is Maggie. And on this episode, we're doing The Life of Emile Zola. That's the 10th Oscar Best Picture winner. Uh, so this was directed by William uh, Dieterle and starred Paul Mooney in the title role as Emile Zola, who is a French um, author. And it follows his life and... Um, the role he played in the political liberalization of France. And it has um, a particular emphasis on his role in the defense of Alfred Dreyfus, who was a Jewish army captain who was falsely accused of treason. And it really exposed a very um, high level of corruption in the French army and the French judicial system. Sorry, words today. Um, (laughs) uh, At the time. Um, So, you know, this is the 10th Best Picture winner. It was 1937, I believe. Yeah, so this is kind of, again, one of those films that sits at a very interesting time in history because 1937, you have the Nazi party becoming very strong in Germany. World War II is officially two years in the future. Um, So kind of that you have this uh, movie that focuses a lot on sort of like corruption and racism and anti-semitism in particular very interesting although they never actually say the words jewish or anti-semitic in the film they do display the word jew though yes and so it there's been controversy kind of in retrospect looking at this film about you know was it really as progressive as it should have been like did it really kind of chicken out on the stance it seemed to be taking by not actually, you know, explicitly stating that, like, what was going on was racism and anti-Semitism, especially considering the social context of what was going on in the world at the time. Mm -hmm. So that was just kind of some interesting stuff that I read up on. Um, I I don't think we're going to talk, like, too much about that controversy in particular, I personally thought that it did a decent job of displaying that message and sending that message. Granted, that's kind of in retrospect, we know what the Dreyfus Affair was about, and we kind of know what happened later, so. Right. And I think there were some pointed lines in some scenes that definitely they tried to make that stance. Mm-hmm. Um, but I am kind of curious if given the climate they were would have been able to make a more overt film from that affair. I mean, yeah, it's it's tricky because um, we are officially in, under the Hayes Code now, like the production code, the censorship is being enforced. And actually, um, the person who was in charge of the enforcement at the time was a raging anti-Semite. So getting any message too strong out there when censorship is kind of against sort of a pro-inclusivity, pro-tolerance message would have been tough. And then, of course, you know, anyone who studied that period in history, you probably know that there were kind of strong pro-fascist leanings in parts of America at the time. So you're right. Maybe being super explicit about that may not have been the best choice for the movie and may have actually, like, hurt that message a little bit. Oh, completely. And again... We've said this multiple times. Films are a product of their time. Yes. So yes. we'll give them some slack, but 
yeah, not all of it. <laughs> I think it's part of what makes watching movies from different eras very interesting. Um, so I'm going to run through uh, the rest of the background really quickly, just going over awards and nominations and um, what else was nominated that year. So obviously, Life of Emile Zola won for Best Picture. Um, it also was nominated for Best Director, but lost to Leo McCary for The Awful Truth. Um, Paul Mooney was nominated for Best Actor, which I 100% agree with. Oh, yeah. He had um, some great parts. I thought he did a fantastic job. He lost to Spencer Tracy for Captain's Courageous, which I haven't seen, but I'm like, if he beat Mooney... It must it's, have been a good performance. It must have been really good, um, especially considering Mooney's performance during the trial, which I'm pretty sure we're going to pick apart that trial. Oh, yeah. Uh, Joseph... Oh, I should have written down a pronunciation. Schildkraut? One for Best Supporting Actor. He played Alfred Dreyfus. Um, again, I think deserving. And then uh, the movie also won for Best Writing. Um, it was nominated but did not win Best Art Direction, Best Score. Um, it was a Max Steiner score. I also really like the score, but I when, I, when I realized <laughs> that, I was like, I really like the score. Who did it? And then I looked it up and I was like, it's a Steiner score. Of course, I loved it. Um, <laughs> he did some really cool things with recognizable tunes and key changes and yeah that's, that's I enjoyed it classic Steiner um it was also nominated for sound recording original story and assistant director and this is the last year that the assistant director category was included and one more bites the dust <laughs> yeah yeah like, like I think we've said this in past episodes but kind of over the years you see like categories get added and taken right. away depending on what's relevant at the time so it was like best dance direction or something yeah, like that was um, mixed that was also discontinued this year and like in previous years they had had so there was best writing for screenplay but then there was like best writing for title cards mm-hmm. back when silent movies were still um you know making up a large portion of movies um so then other best picture nominations were the awful truth Captain Cora- Captain's Courageous, Dead End, The Good Earth, um, and actually just kind of fun trivia about The Good Earth. So Louise Reiner became the first um, actor to win two awards and the first to win consecutive acting awards because of her um, role in The Good Earth. And then in Old Chicago, Lost Horizon, A Hundred Men and a Girl, and Stage Door. Oh, and then um, A Star is Born, which was the first Technicolor picture nominated for Best Picture. Oh, yeah. I think we need to watch that one. We might. If only for the color. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, so that's what else was nominated. And I think we're ready to kind of dive right into story. Yeah. So the movie opens on this horrible attic apartment mm-hmm. that Paul Cezanne and Emile Zola are sharing. Now, we don't know it's Cezanne at first. Well, I didn't because yeah. I wasn't familiar with his history. No, but then then when he said, I was like, wait, 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 is that like the Cezanne? And it was, which I was like, oh, this is great. Yeah. But it cracked me up because <laughs> the first thing I thought was like, this is like the Airbnb I stayed in <laughs> when I visited Paris. So, well, size-wise. Size-wise. I'm, I'm it, sure quality-wise it was It was much, much nicer. better quality, yeah. Um, I actually, that opening scene, so basically there, it's like winter time and they are freezing in their little attic apartment. So they start like burning um, like books and paintings and like basically, I couldn't tell if it was like their rejected work or like the work of, uh, it was the work it of It was definitely the work of others because other they were like, they're all fake. Yeah. They're just doing this um, for the fame. But I was having, it, made, it reminded me of Rent. 
in the opening song of Rent where they start burning. Um, I think in Rent they're burning their own like rejected works uh, mm-hmm. to provide heat because it's cold and their heat's been turned <laughs> off. Um, but I, you know, you immediately get the idea that they are the starving artist types. Yes. Well, and I loved the comedy when they think it's the landlord coming to get the rent. Yes. So you have Emil who jumps into bed and is like, tell him I'm sick and it's catching and make him go away. Um, but it's his mom and exactly. his wife who uh, come and visit, which I, it was not super clear to me immediately that like that was his wife, that Alexandrine was his wife. Were they actually married at that point? I don't or... know if they were married at that point, but they were later married because I initially thought she was his sister. Yeah, it was kind of a weird... They just know, didn't make weird. clear what the relationship was. Right. Um, and I assumed since she came in with the mom that she was also part of the family. Mm-hmm. Um, but later we learned that Alexandrine is actually either at that point his wife or later becomes his wife. But, mm-hmm. but I really did like that scene because it established both Cezanne and Zola as being kind of anti-establishment. Yeah. They have certain... Well, morals and values that they want to stick to. Mm-hmm. And especially with Zola, that's immediate parlayed into a new scene where he's talking with his employer at the bookstore mm-hmm. and is like, here's all this writing and stuff, but they have a policeman there that's like, hey, dude, you're on like the radar of the censor. He, he gets mad at him. Yeah, I think I have another just like, boo, censorship. Because um, I really <laughs> hate censorship. Um, well, and that's another interesting theme to pick for yeah. one of the first films. Well, first cohort yeah, of well, films so under the code. The, um, we've, we've talked about the code a lot. Um, we should maybe do like an episode on the code or maybe yeah. do like a blog post on the code kind of explaining it a little bit more. But it was a censorship code commonly called the Hayes Code after the person who authored it. It was technically introduced in 1930, but Mm -hmm. not actually enforced in any real way until 1934. Um, So we're about three years into code enforcement at this point. And, you know, that's a good point that, like, you have a movie that is very kind of anti-establishment, anti-censorship, like, under this very oppressive censorship code right and i'm curious if they were able to get away with it because of the historical nature of i'm the sure material. i'm sure that's part of it the historical nature of the material and like there isn't really much in here that would violate the code ex- with the exception of one character which i will talk about in mm-hmm. a minute um but yeah just talking about like the policeman being like basically you're on the list of the censors um he basically just tells zola he's like you shouldn't question the great men of letters of this country. Like, how dare you criticize them? Because what Zola was writing was like criticisms of the establishment and kind of the established hierarchy of like writers and artists at the time. And what did he cause it? The nauseating confectionery. And I was like, oh, beautiful line right there. Yes. Um, Literally just writing candy. The dialogue was fire. Yes. In In that scene, definitely. Yeah. Um, but I, I love the way Mooney played the scene where he then gets, so he then gets fired. So Alexandrine basically comes in to talk to him outside of work and is like, Hey, uh, the butcher won't give us any more credit. We have no money. Like, can you ask for an advance? And Zola's kind of like, I've asked for two advances this month already. Like, I don't know if I can, but I'll see what I can do. He goes back inside and he basically gets fired. But he gets his pay till the end of the yes, month. So it's basically pay. an advance. But I love his reaction to um, his employer because he basically kind of like thanks him and is like, now I can go actually write my stuff. 
That and, was very endearing. And it's yeah. like, he's well, committed to what he believes yes, in. Yes. And he's not willing to like sacrifice and stop writing about what he believes in to keep a job that he doesn't actually care about that much. Right. And I just love the way Mooney played that because he's, his anger is very intense, but it's very calm and very quiet. Mm-hmm. And I think that really kind of keeps you on Zola's side. Like there, there's a righteousness to his anger. Yes. Um, that carries throughout the film. So after that scene, I like how you have kind of these vignettes of what he's reporting on and looking into. So the mm-hmm. one that I remember especially was uh, what I presume was some sort of mind disaster um, where they he talked about safety doors and was like, what safety doors? So it's yeah. like, again, you're reinforcing the idea that he's asking the quote unquote tough yeah, questions. He's kind of, he kind of like goes after like a, sort of big business or a corporation at exactly. that time. Exactly. And I just really liked how they were able to show him going after the people in power and then mm-hmm. even the policemen trying to fight him back during yeah. that scene. Um, and so kind of towards the end of that series of vignettes, we get the introduction to the character that I was saying, I think was the only character in this film that would probably have like bucked the code and who they probably had to kind of tone down and like draw back on. Um, so there is like a bit of a riot going on outside of this restaurant. Basically what I later realized was that it was, um, prostitutes being arrested by the police. Mm -hmm. At the time I had no idea why these women were being chased down by police. Um, because again, under code, so they can't explicitly really say it. Like the way that they portrayed the women was so incredibly conservative. Oh, yeah. Like, granted, the time period we're in, I believe even prostitutes were a little bit conservative compared to what we would think of now. But I mean, but they, they would have been less conservative than, like, the style of the day. True. Very true. Um, and, like, honestly, like, the way that the characters, like, the women were costumed and stuff, like, they, they just looked like any other extra to me. Yeah. Um, but there's one of the women in particular runs into the restaurant where Zola and Cezanne are having dinner and basically they're like, you can sit with us. And so they like insist that she's their friend and that she's there with them when like the waiter comes over and tries to get her to leave. And then when the policeman comes in, they're like, no, mm-hmm. she's our friend. She said she was our friend. And I love that he, the policeman's like, so what's her name? And Zola's like, um, that doesn't matter. I said she was my friend. <laughs> He's like, screw you. Again, yeah. anti-establishment yeah, exactly. right there. Um, but in this, this is again where I was like, I, I was like, is she a prostitute? I don't know. But she, yes, she is. Well, and the way you find out, it's still so veiled because she yeah. makes these references to how she's from somewhere else and has and worked here for a long time and, and can't go back. Yeah. Presumably for some shame. At least that's how I interpret it. Or a bad situation, maybe. But yeah, and she kind of talks about like the horrible situation she's in currently and like you see her apartment and where she lives and you do see like there is just her name, which is Nana. Mm-hmm. It's just the name Nana on the door. And then you do see other doors with other women's names. So like you start to piece together that it's a brothel, but like it, I don't know. I spend like almost the entire segment about her trying to figure out whether or not she actually was a prostitute. Yeah. Well, and I think that's emblematic of code enforcement. Oh, for sure. For sure. I will say I loved 
how Nana just threw back that giant glass of cognac. <laughs> I was like, oh yeah, she, you've had a tough life. Like, you well, deserve this. They're like, will you have a drink with us? And she's like, yeah. And they're like, what do you have? And she's like, cognac. Just goes for it. <laughs> well, and they freaked out a little bit because they're poor. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> probably didn't want to afford a whole glass of cognac. Yeah. But, um, hey, more power to them. But basically, so Nana and Zola kind of, kind of bond. Um, and she tells the story of how she had a daughter who got sick and died. Um, and Cezanne has also like painted her. Mm-hmm. Um, he did a sketch while they were yeah, at the table at the yeah, restaurant. Yeah, exactly. That's it. He does a sketch. And then um, Zola decides that he's going to write Nana's story, which initially I was like, I hope he pays her for this, which he does. He he pays yeah. her for the rights to her story um, and publishes a book that becomes a massive hit. Yeah. So when this book comes out, the first scene that I really loved is when you had this high class woman with her husband in the bookstore mm-hmm. and she's like, Oh, this is interesting. And her husband is like rushing her out the yes, door and being like, like, no one wants to read that. Exactly. Garbage. What is it? Uh, cultured people don't read such things. Yeah. But and she so, whispers to well, the shop. What happens <laughs> is she purposely forgets her umbrella in the shop. And so she comes back in to get her umbrella and like the shopkeeper gives it to her and she leans down. And she's like, send over a copy of Nana for me. And he's like, you got it. And this is an example of the times in this film where I really enjoyed some little comedic bits that they were able to throw yes, in. Yes, yes, for sure. Um, definitely added to my enjoyment mm-hmm. of the film there. But the scene that I really loved was when Emil comes in to get payment for the books that he had sold. And so oh, yeah. he's fighting with his umbrella on the way in. And his and umbrella he's is like, like riddled with holes and somebody oh, stops him to try and sell him a new one. But he's like, Oh, no. his line here was great. It, but missed the opportunity to battle with an old friend. Yes. Oh, again, the, ugh, <laughs> um, the writing was so the right. Yes. And I, if that felt like a very Zola way to put it. It which, did. Well, but also Mooney's delivery is so good. He never, like with every single great line he has, with maybe the exception of the trial, he never delivers it as if it were a great line. Like it's never like pause and get ready for this amazing line that people are going to be quoting for years it's It's, very casual yes it's so casual he almost just throws them away and it's so charming and it it makes it feel much more realistic yes completely completely agree so after he fights with his umbrella and gets inside the bookstore he's like oh i'm so sorry can you uh, to the proprietor of of the stores like can you provide me some money like i i need i forget why he needed the money but he needed just yeah. like an advance and how much does he ask for i can't remember it was like tens or fewer of francs yeah um or francs or what sorry I, I don't speak french <laughs> i do but they don't use francs anymore well you know um and the shopkeeper gets this bemused look on his face and is like, oh, just wait. And when he's like, here's your check for 18,000 francs. Basically, and he tells him how many like uh, books have been selling. And Zola's expression, he I started was so tearing adorable. up. <laughs> it was so sweet. And he was just like so excited and disbelieving of it. And it, again, again, with Mooney's performance, like... It was so reserved, but in a way that's like you could see how he was about to jump out of his skin yeah. from excitement. Yeah, exactly. It, it oh, it's just masterful. Um, it's so great, and I felt so good for him. And then he went and bought an umbrella. Yeah, he goes and, and buys himself a new umbrella. Um, and then I, you know, following that, we kind of have this little montage of his following successes, um, and. 
I love the way it's done with there's it's just a shot of like the books just stacking up. Well, and I'm 90% sure that was reversed footage. Because if you look at the way the candle was burning in that scene, oh. I think what they did is they were pushing the books off the table and then just reversed the film. That would make sense. And I also kind of liked the effect. It felt a little gimmicky. But... So I liked it a lot. And I thought it was extremely effective from a pacing sense. Because, I mean, this movie does have some pacing issues um, that I think we'll talk about, particularly in that first half of the movie. Mm-hmm. There are some pacing issues. But I, considering that the previous film we watched was the great... Ziegfeld, which had all the pacing issues. Yeah, this was very tolerable. Yes, and you know, we talked in the Ziegfeld episode about how there were too many musical numbers and they were too long, and basically, you know, when there were montages of, like, musical numbers and scenes showing Ziegfeld's rise to fame, there was, it was just too long, and they needed to condense that. I think the opposite here. Exactly. They did a really beautiful job of condensing all of those books and all of those years building up to Zola's success and notoriety by the time that the Dreyfus affair occurs. Mm-hmm. They just do it in that compressed little scene in kind of a very interesting, fun, visual way. Right. Well, and I think instead of beating the audience over the head with a bunch of content, for somebody who's very well known, mm-hmm. they were able to use the no- notoriety of Zola to help move the film forward there because you know overall I think what this film did a nice job of doing as a biopic because the biggest problem I have with most biopics is there's always kind of a feeling of them well I guess it's two problems at the end there's often a feeling of what's the point where I'm like yeah I just like watch this person you know it's watching a person but you're really watching a character Mm -hmm. um you know watch this character's life but to what end? Like, what am I supposed to get from this? What am I supposed to learn from this? Like, you know, why did I watch this person's whole life? Um, which this movie gives you reasons why. Like, there is a message to Zola. And, and you know, that's inherent on who Emil Zola was and the type of writing he did and everything. But there is a message behind him and his writing and the stuff he did. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also, I think biopics often suffer from trying to show you too much. They're trying to show you everything. They're trying to show you an entire lifespan, which this movie kind of does, although we don't see any childhood, which I'm fine with. Like, it's not relevant. They don't show it, but they take a very focused stance where, you know, the first half of that movie is like them suffering Zola getting to fame And And you getting a clear picture of exactly what Zola cares about. Yes, exactly. And then the entire second, like second half of the movie is all centered around his work around the Dreyfus affair. Mm -hmm. So they pick a focus and like give you the context for that focus. But they, you know, while it is within the context of a person's life, they kind of narrow it for you so that you get more time with a specific issue and get to like learn and feel and have opinions on that particular issue Mm -hmm. i i felt that the macro construction of the narrative arc was really good in this film i 100 percent agree now before we get too far in the dreyfus affair i do want to call attention to one other scene i i have a feeling that this so you know we talked about pacing issues i think the vast majority of the pacing issues are in the first half of the film and i have a feeling that the scene you're about to talk about might be the scene that kind of turned some stuff around for me so was it the scene where they bring in zola's book um 
oh, what was it? The downfall? Because it was all of the military folks reading this book, criticizing. Oh no, their I think my scene Prussian was after War. this, but this this is important setup to the Dreyfus affair for it, sure. It's they're then showing that these high ranking military officials are starting to take issue with Zola's commentary. Yes. Now the way because that scene opened was gorgeous. So just a little bit kind of of historical background to go with this. Um, So the war they're talking about is the Franco-Prussian War of 1870, I believe. Um, And basically what happened was up until that point in history, the French army was like uncontested as the best army in the world. Mm -hmm. Um, And what happened was you had the newly unified German states who really wanted the provinces of Alsace-Lorraine. And so they decided they were going to just take them and they just steamrolled France, like March to Paris just took them. It was an incredibly short war. It was like crazy how quickly the German forces moved and they took Alsace Lorraine, which became a sticking point later in world war one. Um, so it was a giant humiliation for France, particularly the French army. And Zola made it known in his writing. <laughs> yes. So Zola basically was like, here's what they did wrong and why they should have known better. Yes. Now, I think the key line in this scene, though, is the army does not make mistakes. Because yes. what we see is this line come back two or three other times. And I'm like, ah, oh, beautiful writing right here. So we're definitely getting the idea that Zola's on their radar. Oh, yeah. Well, and it's, you know, we get a very clear picture of kind of the ego of this institution and how, like, because they were humiliated in the Franco-Prussian War um, and they feel like they have this legacy to live up to, that they don't want to admit that they did something wrong, especially the people in charge. Right. Well, they want to save face, and that's what yeah, it comes down exactly. to. And that seems to be what the entire Dreyfus affair was Oh, 100%, about, so. which we will talk so much about, because I have a lot of thoughts and a lot of feelings about that. <laughs> um, but I think now we can move on to the scene that I'm thinking in particular kind of turned the movie around for me. Because up to this point, I was like, it's good, but like... That's, it's pedestrian good, yeah, like not it's, Oscar it's fine. good. <laughs> um, but it's the scene where we're, you know, several years in the future now. Zola's fat and gray um, with six, and he's got all Funny his success. Funny you say fat and gray. <laughs> well, I say that because Cezanne specifically calls him fat. Exactly. Um, and, you know, there's a bunch of them having dinner and stuff. And kind of as the party breaks up, we get this really nice scene with Zola and Cezanne who... I adored their friendship. I did too. Um, this was heartbreaking. Oh to me. my God. I cried. Spoiler alert. They're no longer friends. No, they are, <laughs> but they are though, but they're not, but they are. So, what <laughs> <laughs> so what happens, um, is that, uh, Cezanne is basically like, I'm leaving Paris and I'm going back to the country and everything. And Zola's like, why? And Cezanne kind of, I don't want to say accuses Zola, but kind of, Oh, no, he does. He says... But he does it kind of softly. Talent, like his stomach, grows fat and stuffy. Is that what he says to Zola, though? To Zola. Okay, to Zola. Like, 19th century burn all the way. But he kind of... (laughs) But what he says is he's like, I'm sorry, but, like, I'm your friend. I had to tell you that. Basically, Suzanne points out that, like, Zola's kind of, in some ways, become the thing that he's fighting against. And I think that's a very recognizable character cycle, where it's the person who works their way from the bottom to the top, and by the time they're at the top, they're kind of... They've forgotten where they came from. They forgot where they came from, and they've kind of become the thing they initially fought against. So, like, you know, you buck the system long enough, eventually you become the system. (laughs) Um, And 
Suzanne points that out to Zola and they kind of have a conversation about it. Um, and it, it's still pretty amicable. And Zola has this line where he says, sometimes I miss the old struggling cafe days, which I just thought was a beautiful line. It was. Um, and delivered expertly. Um, and the dialogue about, will you write? Okay. Yes. I wanted to say this because oh. I'm about to cry again talking about it because both the actors handle this so well. It's just so simple when Suzanne says that he's leaving, he says goodbye. And Zola just says, Paul, will you write? And Suzanne says, no, but I will remember. I cried. I, oh, I cried. It, it's just so beautiful. <laughs> but beyond being beautiful, this scene sets the stage for actions later on, which we'll, we'll get to when we start getting into yes. the Dreyfus. Yes, but, it's, but it's sort of put the thought in Zola's head that, you know, he's not the old Zola. Right. And that seed grows into a beautiful trial. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so now we get some scenes more with the military. Yes. So we get the scene where it's very clear that somebody is passing secrets. To the German army. Yeah, which is... You know, after losing the Franco-Prussian War, yeah, and like a very bad tensions thing. are still high everywhere in Europe. But like, yeah, everyone's concerned about the German military power, and so like to have someone within the French army now passing secrets over to the German army, like horrible. So one scene that I really loved was where their mole in the consulate, embassy, whatever German building was there in mm-hmm. Paris. I think it's the consulate. I think they explicitly say that later. Okay. Awesome. Um, so their mole there brings this letter in and goes up the chain of command. The scene, the bureaucratic, the bureaucratic bullshit that this guy had to deal with to get this letter up the chain. Like they showed every step. So the guy who pulled the letter told it to his superior, who told it to his superior, who told it to his superior, who finally takes it to like the actual general. So that level of dysfunction that they were showing, I thought was really effective to kind of give the idea of what sort of organization at least we're supposed to think the French army well, was. Well, and it's very clearly an organization that is built on a specific order and like a specific set of rules and you do not deviate from that. It's kind of the idea of like the army quote doesn't make mistakes. Like you do as you are told. Exactly. So that whole scene I really, really liked for that effect. And <laughs> the um, I think it was the head of the army said something about this letter being inconceivable. <laughs> yeah. And all I could think of was, was the Princess Bride. <laughs> um, but the bureaucratic cascade in that was yeah. really great. Um, and another line that I loved was, the man who wrote this is a traitor. And I'm like, okay, general obvious. Like, this is, didn't need <laughs> really? to know that. <laughs> you don't say. But yeah, and so then we are sort of, we have this scene where they are basically, like, they're deciding who did it like they're just deciding they look at a book and pick on. a name yeah they're looking at a book and this is where you know they don't explicitly say that like dreyfus is jewish or i think he was he well, was a no, jewish her- they jewish focus heritage. on the word jew in their like personnel book where it says religion oh gotcha so this is where i think I, they did try I to think, make a play i think i got up to like get some water and like came back <laughs> halfway through that bit and i was like i think something really important just happened no like this is where i think Again, they did try to make it overt that mm-hmm. there were anti-Semitic Yeah, but there's this whole thing, and they're like, how did he ever rise to that rank in the army? Because he's a captain um, yeah. in the artillery. And basically, they're like, yep, he's the one. So Based based on nothing. Exactly. It was just, let's talk among ourselves. So and- this is the point 
where I started to get really angry. And from that point to the end of the movie, it was a lot of me sitting on my couch fuming, trying not to angry (laughs) tweet about this movie. Yeah, this is when we start to see some major, major bullshit from so much bullshit the leaders so they change to this scene where it's Dreyfus and his wife and his two kids in this like super sweet all playing together like playing army and uh, mom is providing some like sound effects from the piano as the little boy is like let me fire my cannon into these toy soldiers yeah I don't know. That immediately gives you so much reason to feel for Dreyfus. Yes, you, you're immediately like rooting for Dreyfus. You know, even discounting all the bullshit that has happened in the scene earlier, because like you know he's innocent. Yeah. So you're already indignant about the fact you yeah. know he's about to have his life turned upside down. Yeah. So they have uh, an officer come in and like basically they don't tell him he's under arrest or anything. They're like, "Hey, can you come meet with this general who wants to meet with you?" And he's like, "Yeah, of, of course." Casual they, dress. But yes, they specifically say but dress in civilian dress. Almost almost like they couldn't stand the idea of like putting away one of their own, so they like do as much as they can to like distance him from the fact that he is actually part of their organization. Um so this general brings him in. And is basically like, oh, while we wait, will you take a dictation for me? And asks him to write down everything that the general is saying. And the general is very clearly asking him to write the stuff that was in that letter. And like, it was kind of funny because like, basically he'd be like, oh, do you you remember the word I just said to Dreyfus? Like almost trying to catch him recite it from memory as if he recognized the words he was having to write. And Dreyfus would like, check the paper that he just write and be like, um, you said note, sir. (laughs) So it was like kind of funny, but also just like horrible because we knew what was going on. Um, and basically like halfway through the letter, that general is just like, so you are the one who wrote it. The handwriting matches exactly why. And he asked him at one point, he's like, your hand is shaking. Are you okay? And Dreyfus is like, I'm, I'm not shaking. I'm good. Yeah. And it's like, they have this whole set of onlookers that are supposedly there to make sure. Exactly. Yes. So basically they're like, the writing matches exactly. Seize him. You're under arrest. And it's such bullshit. It is. And let me just say, I love a sham handwriting analysis when we talk about framing somebody. Oh, they're, they're like the, (laughs) the least... It was horrible. Now, I do want to say, right before he got into that room with that scene, you had the real informant walk out as Dreyfus walked in. And that Mm -hmm. was just some beautiful construction and uh, directorial work there. So props props to them for that. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. But, yeah, so basically Dreyfus is arrested. And then they have an officer go to his home and basically tell his wife, your husband's been arrested. And she's like, for what? And they're, they're like treason. And she's like, um, that's not right. Like he never would. He spent his entire life in the army. All he's ever wanted to do is like have a career in the army. He would never do that. And they threaten her, mm-hmm. um, to keep quiet. They're basically like, do not tell anybody about this. Like, do not try to proclaim his innocence. Basically like don't find a lawyer. Like just, Basically, they're like, shut up and take it. Well, and they, uh, yeah. It made me so mad. So Same. mad. 
same. Now, I will say this is where I had some complaints about pacing because they go to a scene where it's Dreyfus and his wife at the jail and they have their last moment before Dreyfus is basically sent off to South America, like an island off of South America. Yeah, because they, they just convict him straight right. off the bat and um, exile I him. I wanted to see more of that, though. I felt like it went immediately from accusation to guilty, which maybe that was on purpose to but show how much of, of a sham it, it was. Well, and that's kind of what happened. Just kind of, I did a brief, like, refresher reading on the Dreyfus affair mm-hmm. um, after watching this. And from my understanding, like, that's kind of what happened like his conviction was super fast it was just like we arrest you you're guilty you're gone like they 100 percent just wanted to like sweep it under the rug well and they definitely tried to because the scenes of that island that he was on it's like just him in a shack and you see all the sentries over time building up more and more and more fences yeah. around this one guy on this one rock off the coast of northern south america yeah it's it's so bleak <laughs> It really is. Now, after that, though, we have a repeat of this awesome line that I love. I believe it was, I don't, was it Zola that said, I don't think it was Zola that said this, but it was French justice today doesn't make mistakes. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yes. It's, I think it's someone on the street. I think there are a couple of people kind like of. Like a shopkeeper, de- maybe. Yeah, they're debating um, because there's like a, a headline. Like a well, name. and people are out to like basically attack this poor guy yeah like so total mob mentality yeah about for this. sure um because you know he betrayed the army and like you can't question the army and the army wouldn't make a mistake like that and well and also because cough, cough, ju- patriotism <laughs> cough cough um yep. but yeah it's like the shopkeeper basically someone's like do you think he's guilty and someone's like of course he's guilty like french justice wouldn't make mistakes like that these days and i do think kind of that line to me was interesting because at least in my mind, it probably encapsulated a bit of a mentality in, I believe that's the third Republic that we're in as far as French government goes. Mm-hmm. I think it's the third Republic because, you know, this is, I think 18, late 1890s at this yes. point. So like you're at the end of what has been a century of like political upheaval in France. So at the beginning of that century you have just before it starts the French revolution, you have the directorate, you have uh, like the terror, which was just sham trial after sham trial after sham trial. And then you have like the Napoleonic era, you have the first Republic, you have like the restoration. So there's been a ton of political upheaval. You've seen, you know, very corrupt systems of justice and government come through and leave and kind of the idea that they're like, it was a kerfuffle. Yeah. Kerfuffle. Ian stole that word from me from our sound check. Want that on the record. Um, but basically, you know, you can kind of understand people thinking like, no, but we're at like this new age of like reason and our government's stable and we've got a good system in process. Like, you know, that level of corruption, like that's in the past. That's from the old days. So Zola is shopping for lobster. He's become aware of the whole Dreyfus affair. Like it's big news. But yeah. I feel like, like, like Zola kind of playing with that lobster. Oh my gosh. What was it? He's like, oh, this lobster is a grand pair. And I'm like, that yeah. lobster is not big enough to be a grand pot. I think somebody <laughs> says something like to that to him. And he's like, we're going to eat the whole family. And he's like kind of sticking the lobster in people's faces. I, again, another fun comedic moment. But the juxtaposition between the 
intense anger that I had at the Dreyfus's conviction. Mm -hmm. And that it's like, okay, got some whiplash here, but hey, it heightens both. But I I think it's kind of fun because it shows such a reversal for Zola where he like, you know, at that point when he's kind of like messing with the lobster and stuff, like he's kind of being the thing that Cezanne had accused him of being. And then you see in the scene where um, uh, Dreyfus's wife comes to talk to him and basically beg him to help because she's like, I don't know who else to go to. And like, you're the great writer who's fought for justice and against corruption all these years. Like, can you help me? And he initially says no, but she basically like kind of produces some proof that Dreyfus is innocent. But he still says no. Yeah. And for her to get any action, she has to drop those documents and run. Yeah. She just drops them and leaves. And then you really kind of see on Mooney's face, like the um, transition and the decision that Zola comes to where he like kind of ignores the letters, but then you see him like get curious about them and start reading them. And you could almost see on his face that he was thinking about what Cezanne said. And then he looks up to the portrait that of Cezanne. That Cezanne, Cezanne <laughs> had painted of him. Was it of him or of Cezanne? I thought it was of Cezanne. I thought it was of younger Zola that Cezanne had painted. Well, it's a painting of or by him. So yes. <laughs> we have a very overt symbol for his influence. Yeah. And so again, I won't write, but I'll remember. Yeah, it's oh, it's so good. Their friendship was just it really is so precious. Um, so I really loved that Cezanne changed his mind. I do too, and that that payoff was like kind of so long too. It really was, but worth it. Yes, one hundred percent. So anyway, as a result of this, Zola writes his famous his famous Jacques, where he accuses the high level of the French army of covering things up, obstructing justice, mm-hmm. convicting a innocent man. Yeah. Um, and he's brought into court for it, basically for slandering the French army. Exactly. Which this courtroom scene. <sighs> <laughs> I, oh my God, I was like fuming the entire time. It's interesting because you have the judge or the the main judge, because it looked like it was a panel, but you had one judge in charge. Yeah, and but then there was also a jury. It was, I'm not familiar with how I'm the not, French judicial system operated in this area. Yeah, me neither. So, um, um, But repeatedly, you get Zola's counsel silenced. Yes, because basically the judge is like, you can't reference anything connected to the Dreyfus affair because that case is settled. And they're like, um... That's extremely central to this case. So like the lawyer's trying to allow that and they're like, no. And then initially the judge won't let them even question any of the French army. Basically, well, it's the French army trying well, they, to cover their they own sub- asses. They basically subpoena the French army and he, the judge is like, well, I have notes here from like general so-and-so that he can't come in because of like his superior's orders, like yeah. just down the whole chain. Exactly. Like no Ugh, one can come it was in. So infuriating. And the lawyer finally like has enough and is like, you can't do this. And, but the thing that was also a, like made me so angry was the fact that even when they were on the stand, they could just sit there and refuse to answer questions. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like you can't, you Zola's can't representative, his counsel was asking questions of, well, and the um, judge continued. 
Sorry. I, I don't remember who he was, but the guy was just like, I refused to answer and just stood there smugly. And I was like, I'm yeah. going to smack you. I know. I was like, someone hit him. <laughs> I was so mad. Um, I was like, someone hit him in the face with that Bible he swore to tell the truth on. Um, but <laughs> but uh, he didn't. Did you notice none of the military people were sworn in? Yeah. Which I thought was a nice touch there. Yeah. Well, and the judge is like, basically, they don't have to answer if it might reveal um, important French military secrets. And I was like, there's someone in the organization already revealing those. Also, they like reference something that one of the officers told a reporter, but they won't allow um, Zola's counsel to ask more about it because they're like, no, that's a military secret. And I'm like, he fucking told it to a reporter. It's not a secret anymore. Well, and I don't understand. Well, I do actually understand. But it was just so infuriating to see all of the generals just pull secret documents out their ass. Ugh. Like, repeatedly. So... I yes, think the scene yes. Was it's so just they're effective. always like, "Oh, look, we found another secret document," and I didn't write it down. I don't think, but there's like a super good um, line about that. It's like a zinger from Zola's attorney. That's like every time we ask a question, you come up with another secret. Yeah, document it's something like that. Um, the gist. But and, there is a scene kind of outside that I wanted to note really quickly that happens is um, basically there's like a plant in the audience so when Zola's lawyer finally gets permission that he that those officers have to come in and answer to court and that they have to be subpoenaed um there's you see like a kind of go down the line where there's like various officers kind of like signaling to each other and then one goes to a window of the courthouse and signals and there's like a plant in the mob outside yeah. who stands up and is like down with Zola and like riles up the mob and I have a note that says, fuck those officers intentionally <laughs> causing civil unrest. Well, and I'm curious if they actually had these three goons in the actual Dreyfus affair. Because it was like a group of three men who seemed to just do the dirty work of the military leadership. Mm -hmm. And this was one case where it was even more infuriating because it's like, okay, signal to your guy and the way they had the chain going, yeah. it was to make sure that all of the leadership was in, unimpunable. Well, and, and there is the one guy who like flops though, who had kind of been, he, so he was the new head of intelligence mm -hmm. and basically he had reopened the investigation and his findings were like, no, Dreyfus is innocent. Um, it's, a uh, George Picard. Um, well, and then he just gets reassigned to Northern Africa. Well, yeah, but he, <laughs> he names the person who did it. It's, um, what, it, uh, Esther Hawsey. Yes. Um, and he's like, no, no, no. We found that it was major Esther Hawsey. And they're like, uh, no, you didn't. He's like, uh, yes, I did. And I'm going to tell everything. So screw all of you. Well, and then the judge doesn't even question who's no, actually telling the truth. That's, that is the maddening part of it is that like you have the army being shitty and on top of that, you have the person who's supposed to make them not be shitty in court, just letting them be shitty in court. Exactly. So it's like the fox guarding the hen house in some sense. Yeah. Oh, it's so again, this was a really effective scene in the whole grand scheme of things because it really put you on Zola's side and you realized the level of corruption and how far up it went. Basically, they're doing it because they don't want a scandal. Yeah. It's So instead they cause a bigger scandal. Like... Anyway, but there's um, a like a bit that Zola says that I love to one of the officers who's like basically being like, uh, Zola's a fraud and terrible, as he says, um, posterity will choose between your name and mine. Oh, that was such a nice zinger. And I was like, get yes. it, Zola. We chose Zola. Yeah, we always <laughs> choose Zola. Um, 
Yeah, it was just every also every time Mooney he had like two or two or three monologues over the course of several trial scenes. Yeah, his monologue to the jury at the end killed it every time. So good. Speaking of which, the judge even is telling the jury that they have a duty to convict Zola. That's, Influencing the jury. That's, that's not okay. <laughs> like But they don't I I agree. <sighs> Again, building up the case that the leadership and the judicial system and especially the military well, in this also, case were just corrupt. I also love that Zola is they I think it's after the first day of the trial as they're leaving. First off, he insists on going out the front like everybody else. Even though the police chief says he cannot guarantee Zola's safety. Yeah, exactly. Um and I I like that Zola calls them the people in the mob out there. He calls them cannibals. <laughs> and I, I loved that. I also have a note that he's like almost a proto Atticus Finch. No, I got some major like to kill a mockingbird vibes from yeah. this. Well, or maybe To Kill a Mockingbird has some major Emil Zola vibes. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, oh, and I have like that Esther Hazy is such like a coward. Oh yeah. But again, they're just protecting themselves. Yeah, it's oh, it's it's absolutely maddening. And I, I hate the reasoning that they give half the time is they're even like talking amongst themselves, the um the officers, and they, they actually do this. So going back to the scene where they arrest Dreyfus, they try to get him to commit suicide. They're like Here's a gun. I've been told to give you the quote honorable way out, which like, and then like leave him a gun. And Dreyfus is like, no, cause I'm innocent. And then they're like, of course you would take the cowardly way. And it's like, no, you were hoping <laughs> that he would just do it. And then you could say whatever you wanted about him. And then it's not your problem anymore. But like they continue to use that like skewed view of honor with every argument they make. And they're like, we were just doing it for the honor of the army. And like, the thing is, Honor based on lies isn't honor. It's just like a poor excuse for cowardice and criminality and corruption. <laughs> like you, you can't base honor on lies. That's just not what that is. And so it's 100% the coward's excuse that they're like, we were doing it for the honor of the army. No, you were doing it because you were a shitty person. Oh yeah. Again, the writing to build up what scumbags they were is just, it's so Genius. good. It's and great. I'm, well, I'm getting feisty again about it. <laughs> so anything left on the courtroom scene that you want to cover? Um, well, let me go through my notes because I, I have a lot of them on that scene. <laughs> and so we get that Zola's convicted. He flees to London, London, I believe. And he's staying with some friend, it looks like. Yeah. And, and he's getting old. He's getting tired. He doesn't like the cold. Yeah, he was. He had his sheet over his head with a bowl of hot water, like getting that's, some that's, steam that's up that's the like sinuses. I like the way he's bundled up. Reminded me of like myself in the winter on a Saturday morning <laughs> when I'm like, I don't want to get out of bed. That cold dryer, it'll get you. Yeah. <laughs> but his host runs back with some newspapers and is like, Zola, look, oh my gosh. Yeah. So basically, Dreyfus is exonerated, and I actually wrote down kind of like what the timeline was on that um so uh Dreyfus is convicted in 1896 he's finally exonerated in 1906 so he spent 10 years on a barren rock off the coast of South America yeah um then he goes on to be reinstated in the army and served in World War One and retired as a lieutenant colonel no big deal. I'm I'm glad he was able to get over the yeah. fact that the army really wronged him. Yeah. Um, um, but yeah, so we have Zola reading the headline. I think that's when we get the line that I love so much. Um, Truth is on the march and nothing will stop it. 
Well, and we see that a lot of places. So even when Zola is exiled, his old newspaper, like L'Aurora or whatever, mm-hmm. uh, again, um, sorry, don't speak French. Um, it's like truth is on the march, read Zola's writings here. Yeah. So even though he's not there, he's still twisting that knife and the army's leadership in the uh the establishment's back exactly <laughs> um and you know kind of talking about dreyfus's exoneration so i think we have the scene that won that actor the oscar when they set him free i started bawling it's the way he walked in and out and in yes. and out of his cell he, so it's like he didn't believe they basically he had the freedom come in and tell him that he's free and they leave this door to his cell open and he like kind of like walks toward the door of the building and then like stops and like goes back just inside the door of the cell. And it is, it's like, he's, he doesn't believe it. And he, it's like too good to be true. And almost as if he were dreaming. And if he goes out the door, he's going to wake up and then it's all over. And he does that like a couple of times. And then finally you see him just like take a breath and leave the cell. And it's so beautiful. And I started bawling. (laughs) It was so good. <laughs> how many how many movies have we ugly cried in? That's a really good infographic we should put together at the end of it. <laughs> I'll get on that. How, how many of these movies have made us ugly cry? But we then get to see Zola back in his element in France. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not skipping too far ahead, am I? No, I don't okay. think so. So he's working on his next epic. And I love seeing the excitement in Mooney's performance here where it's like midnight and his wife is in there like, okay, come on. You need to like take a rest. Yeah. Let's go to sleep. And he like loses his copy of military law or something like that. Um, And she's like, it's right here. I think, I think this is where he has another, another line that I loved. Um, and that's what, uh, what matters of the individual if the idea survives. Oh, well, and that's also some foreshadowing right there, which, in the same scene, we get this really touching interaction between him and his wife. I have to say, though, in general, I did not like that actress's performance. I found her very stiff. You're not wrong. Yeah, she but did a nice job. A she did a nice job in that scene, but just in general, I did not think she she could not match Mooney in a scene. I mean, that's a tall order considering <laughs> how fabulous he was. But yeah, she she just couldn't match him. Yeah. Now, my one complaint about this scene is how they handled the way he died. And the reason I say that, well, I liked it. See, it felt very, uh, well, how else do you show monoxide poisoning other than to be obvious? Because it's an odorless, colorless gas. So maybe I'm going to walk back that statement a little yeah. bit. But they like focus on the stove pipe you leaking can, some Yeah, smoke, you can see the leak. And you see him kind of just slowly, like he has a headache and then he yeah. just slowly kind of slumps and then he, over is, and dies. Well, he's writing and then you see him just like trail off writing. Uh, I cried then or two. Yeah. This movie made me cry I a lot. Was really nice. <laughs> um, and then, so initially I thought I was going to have a little bit of issue with the ending because I kind of expected the movie to just end there, but the next goes on to a scene after that. And at first I was like, oh, you could have ended on such a beautiful note. Why are you doing this? But I actually ended up liking the scene that it ended on a lot. So it's Dreyfus being reinstated to the army. We basically find out that He's been reinstated with all previous honors. I think they may have promoted him, actually. Yeah, come on, Don. Yeah. Um, so you get to see him. And again, that actor did such a good job with that because you can see that he's happy, but there's also kind of some pain there. 
Well, as there should be. Yeah, oh, 100%. So very believable. Yes, for sure. And But everyone's there, you know, witnessing it. And this time the crowd is cheering for him, um, not against him. I loved him. that reversal. Yes, oh, so beautiful. And then um, basically, you know, the ceremony happens. Everyone comes up to him at the end. They also gave him the uh, Medal of Honor. Or the what? Or it's the French. I forget what the actual title of the French the French version is. But it there's like a specific title to it. But basically, the highest honor um, mm-hmm. in the French military. And then uh, you know his family and his friends come up to him afterwards. And uh, one of them previously saw a newsboy that had a newspaper, and the headline is Zola found dead in his apartment, basically, or Zola found dead. Yeah. Um, so that friend walks back, everyone's congratulating Dreyfus and Dreyfus is looking around and he's like, where's Zola? I thought he'd come. And he's dead. And everyone finds out that Zola died. And it's, there's a moment where like no one has like an extreme reaction, but everyone, everyone is sad. Like you can tell that everyone's kind of intensely sad, but there's no like bursting into tears. There's no, it's not overdone. It's exceptionally realistic. Yeah. I think, um, and so then after this, we go to um, sort of Zola's burial, which I do have to say, I did think the eulogy went on a little long. I agree with yeah. that completely. It was... Um, and it was kind of... It was is heavy-handed. It was like they were like, we're not sure if the audience got the message. Don't worry, rest of movie. We got the message. <laughs> well, and that's one of the things where subtlety would have been very nice. I feel like that's a weird thing that you see from movies of that era, particularly post-code, is where they get to the end and they've done an exceptionally nice job and then it's almost like someone in the writing writing room was like, I'm not sure if anyone got the message. And so they like hardcore explicitly say the message. Um, But there are some other moments in the film where this happened. So like the, the one thing when, the scene when we see Zola convicted and they pan to a painting of Jesus... I, was I, actually, like, I actually really liked that parallel and that symbolism. Uh, I but just thought was, it was overblown. Well, but, there, <laughs> but the line that said before it, it was, was really nice. Um, it, it's something like... This isn't the first time in history somebody has been like put to trial. It's, it's basically someone's like, that trial was a sham. And they were like, there was a, there was a similar trial like a thousand years ago or something yeah. like that. And it pans to the... A picture of Jesus. So I I was okay with that and I liked it because of the lines set around it. I felt that that almost bordered on I liked like it. unnecessary deification. I was also in the middle of my most righteous of anger in this <laughs> film when they did that shot. So I was like, yes. <laughs> Very fair. Um, but yeah, so it's basically um, everyone's in this monument. There's the giant sarcophagus that is Zola's uh, tomb. And you've got um, a priest delivering kind of an overlong eulogy. Um, But you get to see how large the crowd is gathered around him. And there's actually a nice wide shot of, like, the crowd with, like, a sunbeam panning down onto the sarcophagus, um, which I really liked. I thought the lighting was very nice in that scene. And then I, the eulogy, like I said, was long and heavy-handed. I I thought it ended nicely, though. Um, I actually don't have written down what line in particular I thought it ended nicely on. I just remember thinking, like, I liked the way it was wrapped up at the end. Or were you just happy it was over? No, I <laughs> I, I remember distinctly being like, they should have just cut that middle bit mm-hmm. of the eulogy and it ended on the note that they ended on. I was also still crying at this point, so maybe that's why I didn't write it down. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> the ending, I almost would have preferred it be a nearly silent 
view of that. I think that would have been more impactful for me, at least. That's fair. So, but all in all, really enjoyed it. Like I felt I said, it was a better biopic than The Great Ziegfeld. Oh, certainly. Um, certainly. I think there were some incredibly good performances in it. I think, you know, Mooney in particular killed it. I think, let me mm-hmm. read that name again that I'm about to butcher. <laughs> um, and that uh, Joseph Schildkraut, I probably said that different than the first time I said that in this podcast. Listeners, the actor who forgive me. Mr. Dreyfus. Yeah. Captain, then Mr., then Major. It was. <laughs> or <yeah>. Commandant. <laughs> um, but yeah, who played Dreyfus, I thought did exceptionally well. I liked the actor playing Cezanne. I forgot to write down his name. Um, I thought the people who played the army officers did a very nice job. I was super angry at them the whole film, but I thought they, you know, did it well. Um, I Like I said, it's, it's not a perfect movie. It has some pacing problems. It has maybe... Um, some flaws in character development and stuff. But I would say the first half of the film is a good film. Like it's a fine film, but the second half, the second half knocks it out of the park. Yeah. Well, and to be fair, what film even in a Oscar best picture winner is perfect. There's very few, very few. Yeah. I think the only perfect one we've watched so far is it happened one night. I think judgment is being clouded. Um, Much like the French army, Ian, I do not make mistakes. Did you watch this movie, Maggie? (laughs) Which one were we supposed to watch again? (laughs) What if I just made this entire episode up? Oh my God. (laughs) Well, send us an email if Maggie made this up. (laughs) Don't rat me out, listeners. So... Uh, do we want to move on to our lists then? Yeah, let's talk about our lists and where we ranked this. I struggled. I did not. It was very clear okay. to me where I wanted let to put it. Let me pull up my list. I'll let you go first then. So I put it just after Mutiny on the Bounty, which is my fourth. Okay. And before Grand Hotel. Before Grand Hotel. Okay. And I... So it's number... Five, five for me. For you. Okay. Yeah. And really, I thought the performances in Mutiny were on the whole stronger which i mean they were basically neck and neck but it was very clear Mm -hmm. to me that the difference between the life of emile zola and grand hotel like okay so i'm actually sliding it in as number four okay um right after grand hotel and right before mutiny on the bounty so kind of what i really struggled with um was whether or not it was before or after mutiny on the bounty i Mm -hmm. liked grand hotel better but grand hotel as a style of movie is more in line with what i like yeah so that's that's maggie goes for the character drama i love character dramas (laughs) and i like a limited setting where we can just watch the characters interact but where i struggled with mutiny was i was kind of at that same point where i was like on the whole which place like which one of the movies had the stronger performances on the whole and i think in some ways mutiny had stronger performances but like overall, but Mooney's performance was so incredibly good. I also, the, the idea and message of this movie resonated more with me. Uh, I love a good anti-establishment <laughs> flick. Um, and I, I think that Mutiny and the Bounty and Life of Emil Zola had the same problem, but in reverse. Mutiny started incredibly strong, Mm-hmm. And then, and then you went to the Pacific Islands. Yeah, and then and then it started to have issues and started to lull, and I was not satisfied by the ending. Emil Zola started a little rough, but finished incredibly strong, and I was very satisfied with the ending. 
Yeah, so that's fair. Because of that, I'm putting it above Mutiny. I would I would put them neck and neck. Honestly, I would put Grand Hotel, Emil Zola, and Mutiny kind of all right there together. They're I would, all very good. I would I put still... that as my middle of the pack kind of grouping. Like, you know, if we're kind of dividing our lists into like super amazing, middle of the pack, can skip if you want to. Oh, yeah. I Don't would put skip it middle this of the pack. One. I would actually, I would actually recommend one. watching this one, I think. Because, I yeah, that's a new kind of segment we're yeah. going to do at the end is whether or not we'd recommend it. I would actually recommend this one. Um, so anyway, if you want to tell us how outraged you were, if you've watched this movie or how much you ugly cried. Yeah. If you want to tell us how much you ugly cried with this one, we'll commiserate with you. Yeah, we can. <laughs> um, if you want to support the future infographic of ugly crying we're making. Um, but yeah, so you can find us on Twitter or Instagram. We are at best pictures pod on both. You can email us in at best pictures podcast at gmail.com um if you want to rate subscribe review all that good stuff we would love that um and i think that's it for us and the life of emile zola yeah so i'm ian and of course this is maggie and thank you for listening to the best pictures podcast see you next time